So last week, our dear brother, Pastor Ron Kranz, and you can call him Ron, he's like me, he can do without titles and be just fine, um, we call him whatever you want to, he brought Psalm 47 to us. I asked him to speak on that, and uh, I told him he could speak on whatever he wanted, then he's like, well, what are you preaching on these days? And so he's like, I want to fit it in. So I gave him a few ideas, and, and he went for Psalm 47. And we saw that the Lord our God, Yahweh, is enthroned in heaven, and he rules and reigns over the affairs of man and over the affairs of nations. And what Ron did with that passage was that he showed us, even in the midst of the chaos in our world, God is still ruling and reigning. As a matter of fact, God brings on the chaos. And he rules and reigns through it. When God's creatures, when we who are made in God's image reject the rule and the reign of the Almighty God, the Almighty God therefore hands us over to absurdity and destruction. And Ron jumped all over the Bible pretty quickly and he showed why people who reject God go into absurdity and craziness. God hands them over to that. And the Lord who reigns on high, what he says is if you reject my plan, then I'm going to hand you over to the chaos that you desire. And that chaos, that absurdity, the craziness is visible all over our world. And God is the one who brings that on, the people who reject him. But not only does he thrust absurdity on to his enemies as their judgment, but he also brings destruction upon them. And that will show itself in many, many different ways. And so God rules over the nations, even though the nations rage, even though we've got all the craziness in our world. All of that should not cause us to doubt the authority in the present reign of God over his creation. It actually confirms it. Today and next week and the week after that, we're going to look, continue to look at the rule and the reign of our king. And we're going to spend these three weeks in Psalm 72. So turn to Psalm 72, if you would. If you're using a blue Bible from the center of the table, it is on page 537. Psalm 72. So we're going to, there's depths of meaning in this passage that I can only begin to get into today. And that's one of, that's really is the biggest reason why we're going to spend three weeks on it. There's mystery in this passage. Last night, uh, Jennifer set up something fun for me and Noel and Eden and Isaiah was called an escape room. And this was something she did for, the homes, for her students in the homeschool community that she directs. 
But an escape room is not like stuffing someone in that room and chaining the door shut and they have to physically like break out of the walls and get into a new space. It's like a puzzle. You have clues. You have things you have to figure out. You have props. You have hints. You have clues. And you have to put all that stuff together. And you have to work together as a team also. And we actually busted out of the room with, I kid you not, a second remaining. (laughs) Two seconds. And it had a one-hour timer. But, you know, we had all this stuff here in front of us and before us. And we're looking at it and we're scratching our head. And we, we know it means something. We know there's something to it. We know there's something that we don't understand and we're gazing at it. We're using every single part of us trying to uncover the mystery that is before us. It's right there. It's right before us. There is a disconnect between the clues there and, 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 and us. And we know that the Old Testament has types and shadows of who it is that would come and what it is that he would do. So the Jews would read Psalm 72. The Jews would go worship at the tabernacle or the temple and and they'd offer sacrifices. And all of those many things would point to a greater mystery and that is Christ. But, but they were like shadows. You could, you could learn some things about that which is to come from the shadows. But you really, like, like there was so much there to behold. I want to tell you there are mysteries to ponder in Psalm 72. There are mysteries to ponder To meditate on, to examine, to think through in Psalm 72. Psalm 72 was written about 900 years before Jesus came. And so, you know, we can look back into Psalm 72 and see some Jesus here and there. But Jesus' work is not done yet, for he will come again a second time. And during Advent, we recognize that tension between the already and the not yet. Christ has already come, but he's not here yet. He's not finished yet. He's already done so much. He's already fulfilled and, and, and completed so many of the things that he's promised Promised, But there's so many things that he has said he would do that we're still waiting for him after 2023 to do. And maybe it'll be tonight. Maybe it'll be a million years from now. We have no idea. We have no idea. So with all that being said, let's look at Psalm 72. It's 20 verses. It's a long chapter. It's a long passage to discuss. It's a long chapter to read in five minutes or so. So keep in mind, we're spending three weeks on this. So, you know, today's not the only day you get to deal with it. And I want you to know that the questions on your discussion sheet are very broad. They're very general in nature. And there's a reason for that. Because we're going to start 
with the broader picture, the more basic things. And each week we're going to go deeper and deeper into the mysteries that are here. Psalm 72. Follow along with me, please. Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your, ju- uh, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes Bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. These are the words of our Lord. Take a few minutes, dive in, read them to yourself, and we'll start the discussion soon. We have a picture of a king on his throne. And what kind of king is he? He's a good king. I'd love to have this type of king. Yep. So, let's start with this question. Who wrote this? Who wrote this? Psalms have a title. These few words before verse 1. And they often say who wrote the psalm. Sometimes it'll tell you a little bit more than that. But this, it simply says, of Solomon. Getting into the Hebrew from the commentaries I've read, it might mean from Solomon. It might be for Solomon. Who is Solomon? Back in the Old Testament, 
The people wanted a king. They didn't want to be ruled directly by God himself. So they wanted a king and they asked the prophet and the judge Samuel to get him a king. And so Samuel didn't like the idea, but God said if they want a king, just go ahead. It's going to be to their harm. And so God raised up Saul. Saul did not do well. After that, he raised up David. And the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, David was like us. He was not perfect by any means. You don't have to be perfect to be a man after God's own heart. But David was the best king that the people of Israel ever had during this time period. Things actually got so bad after David that eventually God called four nations to come in and to destroy the nation of Israel. It was bad. But David was a good king. And Solomon was David's son. So Solomon was the third king of Israel. He was David's son. Solomon started out really, really well. But he slowly compromised and he didn't end well over several decades. It was a long, slow, downward spiral. But there were a lot of incredible things about Solomon. And Solomon has given us much to ponder. Uh, the book of Proverbs is mostly from Solomon. There's several psalms from him. There's a lot about Solomon in 1 Kings and in 1 Kings and 2 Chron- I mean 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. Solomon is a major figure of the Old Testament. He may have wrote this. Or it may have been about him. It may have been for Solomon. But we look at verse 20. And it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So the book of Psalms has 150 psalms, and they're organized into five groups, or what is known as five books of psalms. And if you look in your Bible, and I hope you have it there open with you, um, you'll notice after verse 20, it says book 3. And then you have Psalm 73 begin. So Psalm 72 is the final psalm of this second group, of Psalms. So 150 total divided into five groups, and the second group ends at 72. So, verse, so Psalm 72, it says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. After, does that mean that there's no more Psalms by David after this? Well, there actually are just a tiny little bit after this. But the majority of them come before Psalm 72. Or does it mean that this is the last prayer that David offered? Does it mean that this is the last prayer that David offered? That's what I think. Can't say for sure. What I think is going on in this psalm is that David is in his final chapter of life. And he's thinking about his life and his kingdom. And he's 
thinking about his son Solomon, the future king, the coming king. And he offers up this prayer for his son. It is very important to David that his son Solomon rule very well. It's very important to David that Solomon do the things that God wants him to do. And we see that in lots of other interactions in other parts of the Bible between David and and his son towards the end of David's life. But it does say of Solomon at the beginning of Psalm 72, and like I said, that might mean for Solomon, or maybe he heard David pray this, and then he says, I'm going to go write that down. And in that sense, he, he was like, I want to preserve this. I want to keep this for me and for all the people. And so that's, that's what I think. I, I, I think he... I think it was cer- I know it was certainly used publicly for the worship of God over the summer um, as I really started to get in personally get into Psalm 72 for my own benefit. I introduced it in one of our monthly prayer guides and we prayed it every Sunday after the sermon. Do you all remember that? It was a, a, a responsive reading. I would read part as leader and then y'all would chime in with one voice together after my part. But this. Psalm was to be read, prayed, and sung publicly. And that was actually true for all the Psalms. So I think that Solomon made this popular. It came from David. Solomon made it popular. He made it public. He put it out there for the people of God. And also the intent was probably for it to be something for the generations to come. But he gave credit to his father David, who originally penned it. You know, every once in a while I'll preach a sermon and I'll be like, most of the sermon I got from Rusty Thomas or most of the sermon I got from John Piper or, or this person or that person. I'll tell you, and, you know, I'll just give them credit, right? You know, um, and, and that's perfectly fine to do some, at times. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're starting off slow, y'all. We're starting off slow. And I want you to think, of this sermon and my next two sermons is one giant sermon. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's page 287. This will, I think this is the only time I'm going to ask you to turn somewhere else. But we need to look briefly at one thing about David that the Lord did in David's life. 2 Samuel seven twelve. 2 Samuel seven twelve. This was early on in David's reign. He had recently become king. And the prophet Nathan has a word from God for David. And this, this word is very, very important to our understanding of Psalm 72. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. These are the words of God to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, 
And he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who was the king before David, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I'm going to point out two things in this. Look at verse 13. The promise to David. Your son will build a house for my name. Your son will build a house for my name. Second part of verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Ever. Ever. And look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we see something being built and we see the lasting nature of it. All right, so this was spoken to David early on in his reign. And no doubt, David had these things in mind as he prayed Psalm 72. Notice that this is a prayer. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God. Yeah, we're back in Psalm 72, not going back to Samuel. Done with 2 Samuel. So Psalm 72, and I think we're going to be there the entire sermon. Give the king your justice, O God. He's, he's, sometimes when we pray, we tell God, like in a very like humble way, God, this is what you got to do. Verse 2, may. Verse 3, let. Verse 4, may. Verse 5, may. Verse 6, may. Verse 7, in his days, may. These are prayers. David is saying, God, this is what I want. May you do this, and would you let so-and-so do that? Would you let things turn out like this? And really, behind the scenes, what David is saying is, is, God, I believe this is your plan. May it be. See, prayer isn't us trying to bend the will of God to our will. Prayer is us coming under the will of God and joining Him in what He's doing and submitting to it. And all of these things in here are the will of God. And David is saying, yes, Lord. And we see the prayer being, Lord, would you do this? God, let it be. May you do this. May you do that. Look at verse 15. We see it there too. Long may he live. May prayer be made. Verse 16, may there be abundance. Verse 17, may his name endure forever. Verse 17, may people be blessed in him. Over and over and over again, we see that throughout this psalm. This is a prayer. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. The king. David's thinking about his son. And the king is to bring justice, righteousness, and prosperity. That's the will of God for kings. That's what they're supposed to do. When I say king, I mean all rulers. Even our own. And I'm not harping on our present civil government But just know, so much of what I say today is how it's supposed to be today. All right. 
So, give, verse 1, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. So I, I believe that the king in verse 1 and the royal son are the same. The king and the royal son in verse 1 are the same. He's really just saying the same thing twice. It's called Hebrew parallelism. There's like two lines that run parallel. And they say the same thing, right? They're going the exact same place side by side. And here we see, give the king your justice, O God, is one line. We see your righteousness to the royal son. That's the second line. And that's just part of poetry in David's day and how it works. Verse 2, may he judge. May this king, may this royal son judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Notice the flow of justice and righteousness. Where does it go? It goes from God to the king to the people. Kings aren't a lord in themselves. They are not an end of themselves. They're not the ultimate authority. We all know that in here. David knows that and he's praying that his son would rule with righteousness and justice. And so if the king receives that righteousness and justice from God, then the king can also deliver it. You can't give somebody what you don't have. Amen? Amen. In verse 2, we see that kings are judges and rulers are judges over people. In verse 4, he says, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Good kings fight, you all, just like good people. Good people fight. They know what to fight, and they fight. But in verse 2 and verse 4, we see rulers defending the poor and the needy. They look out for the interests of the poor, the needy, and the disadvantaged. And look at the second part of verse 4. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy and what? And crush the oppressor. See, rulers bring justice and righteousness to a land by crushing the bad guys. That was part of today's psalm, you know, I mean, uh, catechism. If God didn't judge and he just let the evil go on, then is he good? No! No! He is a God of infinite wrath upon his enemies, and that makes him wonderful. So here, he smashes, he crushes the oppressor. And that is a beautiful thing about a ruler who is just and righteous. See, a good ruler creates a kingdom where righteous people flourish. Amen? Amen. A good ruler creates a kingdom where righteous people can flourish. Proverbs 20, verse 8 and verse 26, it says, A king sits on the throne of judgment and he winnows all evil with his eyes. He discerns. What's evil, what's good, what's right, what's wrong. He sees it. He discerns it. 
And in Proverbs 20, 26, he says those who are evil, he drives the wheel over them. I'm not sure what the wheel meant in that day, but it's probably similar to what it would mean in our day. Amen. Amen. So the king crushes the oppressor. But we get to verse 5 and 7, and we see that the king brings eternal blessings. Okay, David has in mind a lasting posterity of righteous kings. That part that we just read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the prophet Nathan speaks to David. Did you see how many times forever was in that? May he build a house that stands forever, a kingdom that is forever. So verses 5 through 7, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. See, David's not just praying about Solomon in his generation, but he's thinking multi-generational here. I want to ask you something. When you think about the kingdom, do you think multi-generational? Let me ask you this. Let's take it a step further. When you think about your day, are you thinking the long view? Or are you just trying to survive this week? God is calling his people to think about the generations to come. Our present hardships are such a small piece of the big puzzle. Verse 5 shows us David is thinking about all generations. But there's something strange that happens in verse 5. And there's actually, I think there's a really good reason for it. And and I'm going to touch on this some next week, I'm sure. But look at verse 5. It says, may they fear you while the sun endures. Wait, is he, is David praying about the king? Or is he praying to God here? But some translations, like the Holman Christian Standard Bible, it says, may he continue while the sun endures. So may they fear you, or may he continue? See, verses 1 through 4 is a prayer for the king, for the royal son. But in verse 5, in our translation, it says, may they fear you, which is different. Who's David praying for or about? Who, who is they? Is they the people? Now he's praying for the people and not the king? Or is it like the other translations say, may he continue? And it sounds like it's still talking about the same king. Y'all, the Hebrew language is tricky. It's very tricky. It's very difficult. It can be troubling sometimes. But there is a very good reason for this, I think. I think both thoughts are likely in mind. I think we see... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll do that next week. Look at verse 6. What is the king to be like? Rain and showers. Y'all, if we haven't had any rain in a long time, and we get some, we notice it, right? In the summer, if we go three weeks without rain, and I'm out by the cows or goats, they're eating, and there's this crunch. 
they're not hacked. The rain is something we need often and regularly. And if we go without it, it can be to our demise. It can, well, it can be to our hardship, I should say. So would this king be like rain? See, a good ruler benefits his people as the rain causes the earth to shoot forth in vibrance and in beauty and in abundance. In verse 7, we see that under a good king, the righteous flourish and peace abounds. Under a good ruler, the righteous flourish and peace abounds. Verse 7, in his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the sun be no more. I already said it once, I'll say it again. It is the true king's design for the righteous to flourish. That doesn't mean that the righteous won't suffer. That doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of suffering. But it means, I believe, the general trajectory of the life of the people of God would be one of flourishing. In Psalm 92, it says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Ron told us last week, God is handing the ungodly over to absurdity and destruction. But look what he does for the godly. We flourish. Amen. And some of us, we're in seasons where there's some transition taking place in our life. We've had some hardship and we're dealing with it. We're walking, we're submitting these things to God. And God is undoing our absurdity. He is undoing our chaos. And in place of that, we flourish. Y'all, I want to flourish in the presence of Almighty God. And I want all of us to do that together. We are to be a people who flourish. We don't compromise. We don't play with evil. And as we submit our lives to God, His blessings are poured out on us. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs fourteen eleven. The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And this righteous flourishing and this peace abounding of verse seven it connects back to verse three. I skipped over verse three earlier. You may have noticed, but look at verse three in light of verse seven. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. What does it mean, mountains and hills in righteousness? I think what it means is that the people who live in the mountains and hills are living a righteous life. And so they flourish. And there is prosperity. The land is providing everything that they need. That doesn't mean everyone's a farmer. It just means that you can go to the grocery store and get what you want, what you need. You have enough. So this word prosperity in verse 3. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel that Joel Osteen and a lot of other false teachers on TV teach. Stay away from those creeps. Okay, This is not a transactional thing where if you tithe into that ministry, then God's going to make your life easy or God owes you something. This is nothing like that at all. But this prosperity of verse 3, this flourishing and peace in verse 7, 
It has to do with the Hebrew idea of shalom. Everyone say shalom. That's a word that you may have heard before. It is commonly translated as peace. Y'all, I really like my house when there's shalom, right? <laughs> and some days there's not. Some days there could be more. You know, we're like everybody else. We're like you. We're like, you know, we, some days are better than others. But shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. It's not just my kids not fighting. But shalom has to do with wholeness and completeness. Life as God intended it to be. That's what I want for us. But see, I don't just want it personally, and I don't just want it for the church family. I want it for Gates County. I want it for North Carolina, and I want it for our nation. Shalom has to do with completeness and wholeness. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not some type of neutrality. But it has to do with productivity and joy and pleasantness. It is that place that everybody wants to be. Shalom in my house is more than just my kids not fighting. But it has to do with them working together for each other's good. With them being obedient to their parents. With them honoring us. With them walking in joy. With them being pleasant and responsible. And just being kids. Shalom in my house is not just me and Jen not fighting, which we do once in a great while, but it has to do with us really enjoying our marriage. We don't just coexist together. No, we really like each other. And there's shalom, there's peace, there's prosperity. And shalom, peace, prosperity is for the people of God. And the good king provides conditions where those things can happen. Now we can have it if we have a bad king. But we can have it even more if we have a good king. Alright, verse 8. We see that a good king's rule and influence extends far beyond his territory. Look at this. What do we do with this? Is this all about Solomon or is it something more? May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All right, is he like, are we thinking global conquest here or what? May desert tribe, verse 9, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Guys, have you ever swept your shop up and you're sweeping up sawdust and you inhale some? Oh, it's an awful feeling. Horrible feeling. Ladies, have you ever poured some spices into a dish you were making and they went airborne and you inhaled it? It just kind of irritates you in a way that nothing else does. Well, here, may the enemies of this king lick that dust. I don't want to be an enemy of this king. I don't want to have anything to do with it. But then we get to verse 10. Look, there's foreign kings. Bringing gifts. There are foreign kings bringing gifts. Verse 11. It seems like worship. I would say verses 8 through 11 are foreign policy 101. 
And I would say that we see a partial fulfillment of this in Solomon's life. After David died, when Solomon was king, there, there was a ruler from Sheba. Uh, it, it was a female ruler. It was the queen of Sheba. She came and she responded like this. So this prayer was answered to some degree in Solomon's life. And there may have been others. But, but, but it's got to be more than that. We get to verse 12. The king is to save the weak and the needy. We always admire those folks who do that, right? And here David is saying, praying that his son, that, that all future kings would do just this. May, these, may this kingdom that's coming be a place where the oppressed thrive, where they're no longer oppressed by their pimp who leads them and rules them or, or their slave master. Look at verse 12. For this king delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Verse 14, I'm sorry. Verse 14. From oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. See, he offers salvation. To those who can't save themselves. Those who can't get away from the slave master. He sets them free. Verse 14, we see a conquering king again. And I guess all of y'all have been here for a while. You know I love talking about Jesus Christ, the conquering king. But we see here the king conquers the oppressors. Do you remember verses 1 through 4? Righteousness and justice was the prayer. That was like the broad, big picture prayer. Well, this is one of the ways that we see it. The king is conquering the bad guys. And the lives of these needy people in verses 12 through 14, I want to say this. They are of incalculable worth to the king. Their value, the weakest in a society, are of great worth to the king. And we see at the end of verse 14, precious is their blood in his sight. And we're all thinking the same thing, aren't we? Precious is their innocent, defenseless blood in the sight of the king. We get to verse 15. David begins wrapping up this prayer. Long may he live. Give that king a good long life and a great reign. Then we have more about other, of, of Sheba coming in here. May gold of Sheba be given to him. Sheba was probably on the southern Arabian Peninsula. Like maybe like where Yemen is. And what's that other? There's like two or three nations down there. So long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. Verse 16, we have more prosperity. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountain may it wave. 
That's kind of incredible. The tops of the mountains, there's no topsoil up there. The rain hits it, and the water just goes, and it's just wiped away all the soil where things could have grown. But here, may there be grain on the tops of the mountains. That is significant. Verse 16, may its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. There can be rough things in the cities, can't there? There's always this part of town and that part of town where things are just in awful shape. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. We get to verse 17. And we see David's heart and his desire for his son. For the ruler of the people. May his name, may the king's name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. That sounds like 2 Samuel 7 again, doesn't it? The forever part. I got a feeling David has something in mind that is so much greater than just Solomon. Amen? Amen. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. When I see the second part of verse 17, I'm thinking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And if you've heard me preach more than twice, you know who that verse is about. Because I talk about it all the time. Who is the blessing that flows from Abraham to the nations? His name is Jesus, and we are looking forward to his coming. So may people be blessed in him, all nations. Call him blessed. So he wraps up the prayer for Solomon with verse 17. And then there's a shift. He's not talking about the king anymore. But he's addressing God directly. He turns his attention from the king to the one who raises up the king and puts the king on the throne. Look at verse 18. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Right there, that first part, blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh. We get to verse 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. Surely Solomon is not going to live forever. Verse 19. May the whole earth be filled With his glory. Solomon. Was indeed. The son of David. But there is another son. Of David. There is another descendant. Of David. There is another king. From David's. Lineage. You know who he is. His name is Jesus. Let's pray.